Hey, and welcome to the Happy Rant Podcast. Uh, I am not your host, Ted Cluck. I'm Barnabas Piper. Um, Ted is not on with Ronald J. Martin and myself today. Uh, but Ronnie and I are here to bring you the long-awaited CCM Tales from the Road, uh, behind-the-scenes uh, stories from the band look at, at the great world of Christian music. Ronnie, are you, are you thrilled to be doing this? Oh, I mean, tell them. Tell them about all the money that you're paying me for this to even happen. I mean, give them an idea of what that is. Well, tell them, tell them about all the money you made being a famous Christian musician. I think that's, I think that's where to start is just, I think, how did your life change when you got filthy rich <laughs> from Christian music? You know, the money, I, here's the thing, you know, because I, because I dropped out of school early to do music, I don't even know how to count as high as the number of dollars that I made. So there's a, that's the rub. You know, that's the rub. And did they pay you in, like, did you ask for it in duffel bags of cash? Uh, was it, was it in, like, did, did you have them just skip the paycheck, just bring me, like, live llamas and emus? Like, what, what did you do to, to just handle this excessive wealth? I mean, it just depends on the, it depends on the party. It depend on, it depended on the level of decadence of which we wanted to derive it all from. But yeah, there's, uh, believe it or not, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of potential for bags of money. Uh, there was at least within the uh, the CCM world. There's a lot of, a lot of potential for lots of money. So I know that the joke is always, "Oh, there's no money. It's all zero dollars." But they're at, it's actually almost the other way in in a sense, and that's where that's where things can be a little deceiving and tricky. Well, no, that that's really interesting, and I, I know that. So, so for listeners, this is this is not a Ronnie untangling the knot of the Christian music industry. This is much more. <laughs> we want to have fun uh, picking apart Ronnie's music career, just story, literal stories from the road. So that's that's where we're going to go with this. But the point you just made is one that uh, we we might circle back around to it. So what yeah. what success actually looked like. But let's start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start, and that is uh, how in the world did you get into the Christian music scene? Because it was a scene in the '90s. It was a, it was an epic industry of a scene. Well, I mean, it be, it definitely became that way. So we came into it. My brother and I kind of came into it together. But we were teenagers in the '80s, and it was uh, it was different in the '80s because what what you would now or what you would have considered as, you know, kind of the weirdo alternative bands that were doing something kind of left of center. That whole thing kind of originated in the 80s and that was where we kind of cut our teeth. But we were right. just we were just kids that are get, were getting driven to concerts by our parents in our eight passenger, you know, van, right? So mom would drop us off at a concert which would be at a church and then we would my brother and I would just hang out and watch bands. And then we would sort of get to know some of the people that were either in the band or, you know, uh, related to the band in some capacity. And um, then what, what were we, some what were some of these bands or concerts that stand out in your mind? So some of the bands of that era that paved the way, they would they were artists um, like Undercover and the Altar Boys and the Lifesavers and um, Daniel Amos, you know, bands of bands bands that all came pretty distinctly from that particular like early 80s to mid 80s to late 80s era and um yeah so it was i mean it was it was really awesome right because it was like this thing where you'd show up at a church so safe environment you know and we weren't like crazy unsafe kids so you know <laughs> mom and dad drop us off at the safe church environment and we're just hanging out and they're playing really loud music and it's it's kind of all the stuff that you would have at like any normal you know, kind of rock concert with the exception of like, you know, uh, drinking and drugs and, and uh, you know, scantily clad women. and, and So basically a boring concert is what you're describing. That's pretty much what I'm describing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that that's my recollection of the Christian music industry in the 90s as well. Yeah. I mean, by the time the 90s came, they were trying to package it a little bit more raw and a little bit more. Hey, look, we're, we don't look any different than like if you went if you were in a club right now doing this thing. And um, but back then it was just unapologetically. It, it just was absolutely just you're in a church 
and there's there's some there's some a lot of guardrails. There's some caution there, and uh, the bands are up there playing on the stage. That of course the next day would you know will be where you know the church band and the preacher is going to be at and all that kind of stuff. So it was so it was, was this was this the era? I mean, even even up into so I was a teenager in the '90s, few few years behind. There was still a there was still a a fair amount of resistance to certain kinds of Christian music. Yes. So rock that was too heavy. Anything that sounded even remotely like hip hop, that was all just that's devil music. Um, and not not by everybody, but there was resistance to it. So in the eighties, was that even more pronounced? Oh yeah, no, it absolutely was. But it was there were pockets of it that were that were really progressive. So because we were in Southern California, which really, to be honest, was the birthplace of all of this kind of music, um, there were pockets that were still really conservative, but there were a great number of churches, Calvary chapels in particular, Mm -hmm. just were all in on it. Right. So you could literally do like a Calvary chapel circuit monthly and like see all of your favorite bands because they just opened up their doors. They booked these bands. They made these bands popular. They gave them their platform. They gave them their audience. And then here's the thing. Here's the thing that you got to know. So all of these concerts would culminate a couple of times a year because Knott's Berry Farm, which was this amusement park in SoCal, they would have these massive like Christian band nights and by massive, I mean back in the day, there were like 10 or 12 bands. That's all there was. But all these bands would play these nights. And they'd get, I mean, they'd get just thousands of people, all the churches coming in, feeding into these amusement parks. And you'd get to see all of your bands kind of with all the lights and the fog and, you know, kind of in that environment that you really didn't see them in when they played churches. But um, it was super fun. It was super fun. So that that really informed us. And that made my brother and I say, no, this is what we want to do. This is what we have to do. All right, so this is what you want to do and this is what you have to do. How did you – I mean obviously you can play music and make music whenever you want as a high school kid. When did you start getting into the performing side of things? So you would go play a gig. What, what, was, your, what was your first gig gig? Oh, dude. So the first gig was um, at my school's junior high banquet. I was in high school. My brother was in high school. We're just a couple years apart. And um, I think I was a junior in high school. This was the late 80s. And um, yeah, so we uh, we kind of got our stuff together and uh, we got prepared. And um, I, I went to the <laughs> went to the teacher that booked the, the junior high banquet, whatever it was. And um, they asked us if we would play it. And we did. And it was the it was the first gig. It was the first gala. And what, what kind of music were you playing then? So back then it was, uh, so we were doing electronic music, but it was very much like a, uh, you know, this was the 80s. So it was very much like a, a Pet Shop Boys meets Depeche Mode kind of a thing. <laughs> so it's like, so it's like my brother behind like a bank of like keyboards and synths right. and then me like singing a vocal. And it was, uh, it was wondrously horrible. So. <laughs> do, do, are there recordings that survive from that era? Well, okay, so there were no, no, probably no live recordings, but we were. So this was the era where you would have to go into a studio because it was, it was a little pre before everybody had home studios, right? So you would have to go into a studio. You'd have to pay kind of a, you know, a kind of a large sum of money to have somebody make a really bad recording for you. So there, there's a lot of those things that are in existence that we actually have a label that's getting ready to release some of that stuff right now in the next. Oh, few really? Months. Yeah, all the it's early called like stuff. call like Ronnie's really bad recordings or something. Um, yeah, I mean it should be. That's what it should be. Called. Deep Joy Electric deep cuts. Yeah, I mean it won't. This is pre Joy. I mean this is right. like really early. This is like you know eighteen, seventeen years old. You know, kind of a thing. So, yeah. So when when was the first time you made money playing? Did you get paid for the junior high thing, or was that just sort of a you threw your name in the hat and and played? That was just they asked us to play. We can barely believe our luck. That's what that was. They also could barely believe that they said yes. Yeah, I'm after sure. we started, there's no doubt about like, that. What yet. have we done? <laughs> so we didn't. So, so we didn't play a lot of shows before we got signed pretty early, and um, so we got we got signed to a label that eventually folded. They recorded an album with us, and the label folded before the album came out because their distribution tanked on them. We all know how those things go. And then we signed to another label. My brother and I, we were still together, and we did two albums. And um, that's when we actually started playing and getting paid and started doing a little bit of, like, regional traveling. And that's when and, and how old were you then? So you're, like, late teens, like, college age? What? How old were you? Yeah, this would have been college age. And, again, my brother just getting out of 
literally just grad or not quite having graduated. He was like a junior or a senior. Okay. Yeah. So, and so, and, and were you, you were still like, were you electronic music sort of the whole time or did you dabble and dabble widely and then sort of come around to that? No, we like, so I started buying all the, so I, so, you know, I, I started working at an early age. So I, while I was going to school, I would work. And so I was fascinated with electronic stuff. Cause again, I loved bands like Pet Shop Boys and all of that. And so, but it took a lot of money to buy that gear back then, you know, gear right now is really, it's good and it's inexpensive back then. Right. It was big and it was expensive. And so, um, so I had to work and I had to like save my, you know, all my pennies and I just saved thousands of dollars. So I would be like buying this gear because this is what I wanted to do. But in the meantime, as I was buying it and I was trying to figure out how to make it, because it's one thing to have the gear. It's another thing to even know how to work it. And then, um, but my brother and I, we would, we were also in another band that was just like your standard sort of three piece rock pop combo. My brother played drums. I played guitar. And so we were kind of doing that at the same time while I was trying to do what I really wanted to do on the side. So that's kind of how that went. Got you. Yeah. All right. So so you signed to a, a label with your brother, and uh, and you guys start you know playing shows, touring, c- cut a couple albums. What what was your first like real tour where you hit the road and you're gone for weeks? You know, you, you so you, you're you're away from home, or was it a lot of like local stuff, or just day in day, you know, like weekend shows kind of thing? It was a lot of yeah, it was a lot of local stuff. So here's the thing. So we. The reason, one of the reasons why I wanted to do all the electronic stuff was because there was nobody in the, the CCM world that was really doing it. So because of that, that's actually still true, I think. Well, it it kind of was, yeah. But but um, back then it was, and again, we're coming into the '90s, and so, and then you know, Nirvana hits. So like, what we're doing is like really unpopular, um, and because it's a throwback to the '80s, and you know, yeah. all that stuff has moved on quite a bit. It's still happening. It's massive in Europe and all that kind of stuff, but not not in the U.S. And so it was bad. It was it was wrong place, wrong time. And so we were out there, and we're we're get you know we have all this distribution. You can you know you can find us in every Christian bookstore back when there used to be Christian bookstores everywhere. And so we were we were we had our feet everywhere, but it was you know stylistically it just wasn't where people were at at the time. So we had a we had a really hard time like getting shows and doing all those types of things. We just were never widely accepted. And then we moved on a few years past that. My brother went on to form something else, a more rock-oriented project. I continued doing the electronic stuff. We signed with Tooth and Nail. And then that's when that whole industry right there, because of Tooth and Nail, exploded. And that's right. when all the touring exploded. So that's and like, that's, that like yeah. mid, mid-90s, 94, 90, 94-ish? 94. Yeah, the label started in 93. Most of the early, I was one of the first bands signed to the label. And uh, my first record hit in 94. And that's when everything just sort of... I mean, literally exploded with that whole label and that whole scene. They basically invented that 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 whole thing that happened. They, I mean, there were some people that paved the way, but until Tooth and Nail came onto the scene, I mean, it it had never hit the heights that it did until they did it. And so that benefited all of us um, because even for for us, like my brother and I, who had bands, it didn't sell incredibly well. We were able to create these just these super culty niche like audiences that allowed us to go out on tour. And, yeah. and pl- play venues, you know. So, so <clears throat> what were some of those venues? Were, were you still playing churches? Was it like elementary schools, bars? I mean, it's Christian, so maybe it wasn't a bar. But what uh, <laughs> what kind of venues were you playing? Bef- like pre pre tooth and nail. Okay, so pre tooth and nail, it was generally all like church youth group stuff. Or there would be, you know, I mean, you probably knew about these things. You know, like how some churches, they would have the church youth group, and then they would, um, if they were like a big mega church, they could like go up the road, and they could buy like a separate venue that was separate from the church, and they created their own little like rock venue. There was a ton of that stuff back in that day. I don't know if there really is so much now, but sort of these like faux clubs, these faux club environments, you know what I mean? And, yeah, um, that was that was the uh, the in the world, not of the world days. Except right. it wasn't even really in the world. It was more like we're going to create our own world. Right, we're going to create our own world, and it's not actually going to be a very great world, you know. But um, <laughs> no, it's a, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a half baked version of the other world that's more fun. Right, it's half baked world. Right, so we played a lot of half baked world club shows, and um, so we did a lot of that because that's. That, you know, they were receptive. So that was back when, like, you know, all of this kind of more weirdo kind of music was was being accepted. That's just what I call it. And um, and so you have these venues that are like, yeah, no, we want you to come in. And then um, so we kind of cut our teeth on that. But then when the tooth and nail thing hit, 
What Tooth and Nail did was they were able to get their feet in both the uh, the Christian market and the general market. So now you're playing everything. You're playing clubs. You're playing youth groups. You're playing youth conferences. You're playing amusement parks. You're playing big CCM festivals. So all that stuff now was just completely like opened to all of these bands that were doing these things. So out of all of those, did you have a favorite like uh... – so Christian were Christian music festivals the best or the worst were you know secular venues best or the worst was was like a long tour part of your experience that's a lot of questions but just sort of what were what were the things that stand out as like oh I loved doing this thing yeah I mean so the festivals are what you ended up doing all summer so from about June through September you would hit yes. the festival circuit, right? And, um, and you know, again, after a while, you get to know all the, you know, you have it. So we had booking agents and they get to know all the, the promoters. And so you pretty much just, you're almost constantly invited to all the same festivals every year. It's, it almost becomes like a, it would be shocking if they didn't invite you kind of a thing. It's just weird how mm-hmm. the industry works. So we ended up doing that every summer. And though that was- Well, it's like, it's like uh, my dad at Together for the Gospel. Exactly. Like- if he didn't get invited, it would be shocking. He's right, sort of on the he's, a, saying, Dude, did he's I a tour headliner. <laughs> right. So the festivals were great because number one, um, you're you're playing. You know, if you play a regular venue, you know, if if you're lucky, there's going to be a couple, few hundred kids there. But you played a festival, and you could be playing to three thousand kids. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's why you love the festivals. And then festivals were good for merchandise sales. Oh, I so bet all summer, man. That's what you're doing throughout the entire summer. And then you play shows in between, you know, so you're, you're kind of on tour, you're playing shows and you do the, you know, the big festival on the weekend, you play a show or two, you go to the next festival and that's kind of what you do. And then other, at other parts of the time, other parts of the year. Yeah. You're just playing like regular venues. You're just kind of doing like two, three week tours. We would do, you know, we never did anything longer than probably three to four weeks. And then we were part of a package tour one time that was three months and um, so the whole time I'm trying to balance this with the fact that I have a daughter and I have a wife and um, and I, I want to keep my daughter and my wife. You know, I was I was one right. of the few people that actually wanted to maintain a, a marriage and a, you know, in, in a relationship with my daughter. So it was um, it was tough. So those that was all that was all hard stuff. For right. Sure. Yeah. So when <clears throat> when you're at a uh, when you're at a festival. So I, I went to one or two music festivals in my high school days. Um, yeah. There was a period of time where I was very embarrassed by this and would never admit <laughs> to it. And now I look back and I'm just going to own it. You know, like the the OC Supertones and Newsboys and Audio yeah. Adrenaline and DC Talk and all of them. Um, they were all part of my they were all part of my youth third day. So, yeah. uh, what what were the accommodations like for you then? Were you were you staying on a tour bus? Did they put you up in a hotel? Were you like a tent dweller? What uh, what was the where did they put you up at a festival? Yeah. So what most people don't know, like if you go, okay, this is what's so funny. If you go on a general market tour, okay, um, in other words, you're just a you're, you're just a you're just a band. Like we'll we'll use the word we we'll use the most common phrase. If you're a secular band, okay. Um, and you're just going around the country and you're touring venues. I mean, the venue doesn't do anything for you, right? The venue is like you come up and play, you get either a guarantee or you get a, you get a, you know, you get a portion of the ticket price. And so if you can pack out a venue, you're, you're going to do great. You know, it's all, it's all down to who you are and the platform you have and the fan base you have. Now, (laughs) what was so crazy was in the Christian market, it's totally different. Like the contracts that you gave promoters were like crazy. Like they had to put you up in a nice hotel. They had to provide dinner. They had to provide this. So it's like all this stuff that promoters had to provide you with. So yeah, you go to these things and they'd put you up in these really nice, you know, hotels and you'd be, you'd get kind of this great treatment, right? I mean, I wouldn't say it was like rock star treatment, but in some ways it kind of was because really if you did a general market tour, they would look at you like you'd, like you talk to people, you talk to friends who only did general market tours and they would ask about this other world you were in. And when you, de- <laughs> when you described it to them, they were like, you're kidding, right? I mean, who do they think you like? Like, who do they think you are, Bono? You know, it'd be like that kind of a thing. Venue where they would book bands to play. I mean, technically speaking, right? Like Willow Creek has almost an unlimited budget for that, right? Like they're bringing the band in as a way to do what they would probably call like outreach. So they have a budget to spend on that. 
Um, so their whole thing is not really about making money. Their whole thing is about spending the budget that they already have in place to book the band to do the function that they book them to do because they have an outreach budget. So in the general market, I, I mean, dude, you're talking about a dude that owns a club. Like he, he, it's not his outreach budget, you know? So he's coming in. He makes his money from the sales that the band brings in from their fan base. And then he gives a cut to the band. And that's that's just how he stays in in business. I want to throw some bests and worsts at you. Um, so just highlights and lowlights of, of your time on the road in, in CCM. So is, do you have any particular memories of like a, a standout concert or a standout venue that you're like, every time we got to go play there or play for that crowd, play in that location, that building, like for country musicians playing the Ryman is yeah. It's like the peak thing. It's like the Wrigley Field of country music. Uh, but it probably doesn't mean anything to you on either front because you, <laughs> you like country or baseball. But uh, it was any, any standout venues, concerts, anything like that? Well, let me just qualify what you just said because I like baseball a lot more than I like country. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you are American in at least one way. That's good. Yeah, I like pie and uh, you, you know, I'm indifferent to whether your car is a Chevrolet or not. So I don't really care about that. So, And how do you but, feel about hot dogs? <clears throat> you know what? I, I would, uh, a Hebrew national works any day for me with a lot of mustard. You know, but I'm I'm anti. I don't believe in ketchup and hot dogs, so I would be pretty oh, American man. with that. That's real American, that's, right? That's there. well, that's super Chicagoan because there are parts of the country where that's that that they're kind of more uh, agnostic towards ketchup. Right. I, I'm yeah. I'm a ketchup agnostic. I'm totally fine with it. Oh, you are uh, weird. All right. I don't understand the the religious fervor against ketchup on hot dogs. It's not and, that. It's just that you know when you have a when you have a hot dog, you're looking for that bitter mustard taste. When you have a burger, you want that sweet ketchup taste right okay like that see that's the best explanation i've ever heard whereas a chicagoan is just a pure legalist about it where they wouldn't know why other than just like that's not what we do here so, right it's just tradition but it has not yeah. i just care about the taste it's all taste driven so that's yes it. well and that's yeah and you are a man of of good taste so that oh makes sense. what what a nice thing to say pipe i appreciate that so yeah so good man good and bad uh Gosh, it was, it's really hard. It's hard to think back on some of these venues. There was, so what was it really interesting was that you, you played a lot of venues that may have lasted like one or two years and then, um, they, they went out of business. Was that because they were like specific to Christian music and they just couldn't support themselves or, or what kind of? Yeah, what I mean, was, that's, what was the reason behind that? A lot of it was because a lot of it was, uh, well, a lot of it was, again, I think we talked about this earlier, but a lot of it was, was church supported. And mm -hmm. what would happen is a lot of times churches would, they would shift their, you know, their ministry focus. And so they would say, well, that, that thing that we did with the bands, like we're not doing that anymore. That's thing, that's something we did. We've been doing for 10 years or it's something that we resurrected and it's just turned out to be a nightmare. We've had a bunch of legality. Or the, the person who cut the big check in the offering plate left to go to the megachurch down the road, and so they had to take the ministry in a different direction. I mean, I, I mean, I actually think that's legitimate because I think, um, yeah, there would be people that would have a heart for that at certain churches, and then as soon as they said, yeah, we don't really want to invest any more budget money into it, you know, because it's not really – you know, it's like anything at a church. If if you don't, if you really aren't seeing sort of the return of investment, you're not really seeing lives impacted in, in, in those kinds of ways. Then a lot a lot of churches would just back out. So there were venues that were sort of funded with that, and some of these venues could be really nice. So they poured millions of dollars. I was thinking, there's this man. There was this one venue in uh, actually in your neck of the woods in Minneapolis that we played a couple of times. I think it was called like Third Avenue. I I, I think I got that wrong. First Avenue. Third Street. It was something like that, but it was, I mean, it was like one of these venues where it was like, it was kind of like, uh, it was kind of like Hard Rock Cafe where it was like, it, it was, it was a great venue, like just killer sound. Um, really, they went, they went like really bucks up on everything. And um, we played there a couple of times. It was really good. And I don't know if it's – maybe it's still around. But um, that, that – First Ave is a uh, – there's a, there's a venue. I mean, that's like, that's like a classic music venue in Minneapolis where, I mean, everybody from like Bob Dylan to Prince to whoever has played there, but they have, they have other rooms there that, that they do smaller concerts. And I mean, various hip hop artists have been there. Dave Chappelle's done shows there. So you might've shared a stage with, 
Yeah, you know, I don't think it was that. Stages. Yeah, it okay. was pretty. Yeah, it was. It was definitely like a church-oriented venue. And, <laughs> nope, not this one. Not yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was like right, and it was like I'm, I'm thinking like between 2005 and 2007, um, and then uh, I've I've never heard anything about it since then. And then there were other things you do right where um, sometimes you would play really bad venues, but the crowds were so great that like you just you just didn't care. So it's like it was what, like a what made a great crowd. Well, so what made a great crowd was number one that there was a crowd. Okay, so <laughs> that always Base, helped. Baseline, that's good. <laughs> right. So there was just you know you would have a it, it would be a it would be a smaller venue, and so if you even had between a hundred and two hundred people there, it was just jammed. So though you know there was a lot of energy, and um, you know decent sound system that always made a good venue. So like you you know you. You needed you needed to have some 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 wattage. You know you needed there you needed there to be some right. investment in a good sound system, so that no matter what, like it was still you were represented well at your sound was at least. And so that always had a big part of it, and a good monitoring so that when you're up on stage, you can really hear what's going on and you can feel it, you know, in your chest. And um, again, there would just be certain venues you'd play in certain parts of the countries for us where we just happened to be a little more popular. We sold, you know, a few more records. And um, every time we'd go there, there would just be a great crowd and it was just super fun. And um, and so but but again, it didn't have to be a really nice venue. It could be a total hole in the wall. But um, it just the crowd was so great. The system was great. And um, you always walked away just having felt like, you know, you, you were, you represented well, you, you could do your best, you know, so it was cool. What, any, what parts of the country you said, you, you know, you go different places where you just sort of had like these, these pockets of fandom, any of those that stand out that where you're like, oh, you know, Pittsburgh or I, you know, being that you, 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 you consistently go back to Pittsburgh, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know, Ovedo, Florida, I'm just throwing out random towns. Where, where were those, where were those pockets of, uh. Of fandom, yeah. So I'm just trying, off the top of my head. Yeah, we always did pretty well in uh, in Pennsylvania. We did we did really well in Ohio. Big with the Amish. Big with the Amish, absolutely. Um, yeah, they love electronic music. They do. It's big. It's big. It's no doubt. I mean, they got to find a way to like plug something in to listen to it. But other than that, yeah. <laughs> but um, no, yeah. So Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, man, we did a lot of stuff in. Uh, you know, Kansas City was always a really good city for us. A lot of Texas stuff uh, back and forth. You know, you know, Texas was like good or bad. You know, it's kind of like Texas, right? You you don't know it's good, it's good, it's bad. I don't know. You know, and um, yeah, you, you know, it's a love, it's a love hate thing for sure. Pacific Northwest, because our label was 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 in was based in Seattle, we always did pretty good in Seattle and Portland. And so, um, yeah, just, I don't know. So, and then there were markets that we should have done well in that we never did well in, like uh, Florida. And, uh, you know, all of our friends would be like, oh, Florida's awesome. You know, we pack out these venues and we're like, yeah, we had, you know, 34 people there last month. And so it was like that kind of a thing where it was hard to tell. But so we had, we would have like unique little areas where we did really well in for some reason we could never Florida strikes out. me as an incredibly mainstream place. Yeah, it was. Like when it comes to these, so when you talk about friends selling it out, like, yeah, I kind of picture like your mainstream CCM kind of stuff doing well there. But you guys were, I mean, I don't know if underground is the right term, but definitely sort of non-mainstream in your, in your music. So is that you think that was part of it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, yeah, because it's so you know, uh, Florida is so Disney oriented, you know, and it's <laughs> you know, and all that. So, right. I mean, you know, there were. Yes, I'm, that's what I meant by mainstream, just Disney ish. Well, and there were there were bigger venues out there, and we just yeah, we just for some reason we never we never did we never did well in Florida or anywhere around Florida. So we 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 went there a lot, and we always needed to probably be on a. You know, we probably needed to have somebody bigger than us that we were supporting before we we would we would do well there. So it was kind of one of those things, you know. So, gotcha. but it was really it was really hard to say. It's really hard to say. Yeah. All right. Um. Any any standout experiences that were just like that was the most bizarre? Like you got invited into something and had no idea what you were walking into. Oh so my gosh. Here's I'm gonna I'm gonna name drop here, and this is just sort of a this is an example for for listeners of what I'm talking about. So, uh summer of last year i went to this fourth of july festival i think we may have even talked about this on on the podcast and uh for king and country was playing yeah. at this thing and what i didn't realize is that it was like this massive bait and switch evangelistic thing um where they had brought in like this 
hellfire and brimstone preacher to try to convert the entire town of Jolton, Tennessee. And, uh, and, and then I, and so it was just this, this weird, bizarre outdoor thing with, you know, this concert by this band who's really respected. And then this guy comes out and tries to save everybody. And then they're supposed to get up and finish a set. Well, I met the, the two guys from for King and country when I went to Israel and, I, I of course brought this up to them and I was like, so what was that all about? And, uh, and they were basically like, yeah, we didn't know what we were walking into. Yeah. It was, it was a local event with a decent paycheck and, uh, and we make sure now to vet the events better or to coordinate them such that we don't get put in that spot. So, uh, that, that is an example of a bizarre concert. <laughs> and I'm sure you would have felt even more bizarre than them playing for a bunch of like, Make America Great Again, Red Hats, and stuff like that. So, any any standout weirdo concerts? Yeah, I mean, so hearing them describe that just it just that just clues me in that nothing's changed in twenty five years. <laughs> you know, I mean, here is the thing: like, there is no way to vet anything. That was that was that was their very nice way of saying, um, you know, next time we get offered all of that money, we're going to try to be a little more, uh, you know, uh, you know. Conscientious, but that just doesn't happen because you you have no way of knowing any of those things. So in the Christian industry, that's what's so interesting is that you you're you're going blind into you know many of these events, especially if they're events. So like you're you're playing like a youth event or something of that nature. I mean, you're completely blind. You have no idea. You're not you're not like told what else they have on the program. You're just part of the it's program. Like it's you and Bozo the Clown or something. I mean, I mean, it's, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, to even like start even naming off some of these things that we've done, it's just, yeah, it's oh, crazy. Please I mean, we've done, na- name off some of the well, things you have I done. Think, I think some of the, some of the weirdest ones were like more of what you would call like private events to where, um, and these were ones where you'd get contacted by, you know, I remember this one event, you know, we did, it was like, it was like a private birthday party for somebody. I have no <laughs> recollection. Ron, and, Ronnie does bar mitzvahs. Yeah, I mean, almost, right? Where they, where they just, you know, they say, "Hey, you know, my, you know, my son or my daughter, you know, said it was their dream when they turned eighteen to to like have, to see you live or you know whatever." And you know, they they probably do offer you, you know, a nice package to come out and do all of these things, right? And um, so you go and you play for like seven people, and um, you you get there, you fly there, you play. A, a very short set and then you leave and it's like you were never there and you're like did we just what did we just do you know and that's <laughs> like, that's how it that's how it would feel you know what i mean you just do these super super bizarre things i remember i remember we did this um i remember i got booked to do just an acoustic set one time for a wedding and um and it's like you i mean again you have no idea and um so you show up at the i remember i showed up at this wedding um, I remember um, they set so there was this massive dance floor, and um, they had everybody. The wedding finishes. They have everybody across this massive dance, and ma- I'm talking massive, like like to see like where I'm at on this stage, and to look over across the dance floor and to see everybody over like in the reception area. It was like you could. It was it was it was like I needed glasses, and I don't wear glasses, you know. And so I said, well, "What do you want? You know, what do you want me to do?" And the guy was like, oh, I don't know. Um, why don't you just stand over there? And they set me off to the side of the stage and just play some songs. And I said, so hold on. Is this for like, you know, the bride and groom to come out dancing or, you know, what do you want me to do? He goes, oh, um, I have no idea. You just do whatever you want. And I said, like for the reception, he goes, you can just start playing and just do whatever you want. And I, I said, okay. So I just started playing a couple of these acoustic songs and then I was two songs in and the guy runs over and says, okay, the bride wants you to play this particular song because she was a fan. I said, yep, no problem. So I played it and then he runs over and he says, okay, we're good. You're done. And I said, oh, I said, like, did, did I mess up? Like, are you, like, are you angry? Did I not play? She, he's all, no, that was perfect. That, that's all we wanted. We just wanted three songs. I'm like, so let me get this straight. Like you, t- you, you brought me all the way out here. You're paying me all this money and you just wanted me to play three acoustic songs for the wedding. And he goes, yeah, dude, it was awesome. <laughs> God bless big wedding business. And, I, and I'm like, okay. So again, he hands me a check. We load up and I'm out. I mean, it was just things of that nature 
just were so, so, so bizarre, you know, and you don't know what to think about it. And then there's other stuff like this. So here's one that everybody will like. So we are playing at this uh, festival in, I think, again, Pipe, it's ironically enough, I think it was called Sun Life Festival in Minneapolis or outside of Minneapolis or somewhere in the uh yeah 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 it's it's uh it's Sun like an Fest. hour and a half it's like an hour and a half west of there yeah it's like what is it it's sunshine sunshine with sunshine an O music festival. sunshine I, with an O and I, I have uh I have been I have been to that one at least once maybe twice so I got so I I was friends um I was really good friends bizarrely enough with this band uh, this is back in the mid early mid two thousands. With this band called Squad Five O, and um, they I recall uh, that name. I don't know their music, but yeah, they were just kind of this, uh, you know, just just kind of this, uh, you know, really like garagey kind of kind mm. of rocky Rolling Stones kind of thing. But they put on this just killer, killer live show, and that's kind of what they were known for more than anything. Really nice guys, and again, like you would like you would have never put us together sound wise, but we just happened to be like we really liked each other. We were friends. It was two brothers. And so we would see each other at these festivals all summer. We'd end up like setting up our merch booths next to each other and then hang out after the show, blah, blah, blah. So whatever they were. Um, so we, so we're, we're at this, we're at sunshine, right? And so I'm playing my set and, um, and then they said, Hey, why don't you come up and just play a couple of songs with us? Bring up your synths, some of your electronics and just kind of like play along. I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. You know, we, so, you know, it was kind of loose, you know, we did some things like that. So I get up there and it was right before George W. Bush, it was 2004 and it was right on the eve of like the election, you know, to where like he's, he's running again and is he going to get it and all that kind of stuff. And so they get up there and um, they just, I mean, they're just going off politically on, on everything that's going on in the country. And they start chanting this thing where they started saying, uh, GOP is not G-O-D. <laughs> so, so that I'm, sounds like the most Christian music <laughs> festival thing I can imagine. Well, I mean, except for like for them, like that was that was real out on a limb, man, because like right. you don't say GOP is not G-O-D because clearly GOP is G-O-D, right? Yeah, clearly. Clearly. We all we all know that, right? But um, so they're chanting this and they get this crowd just going and going and um, somehow I'm up there while all this is going on. I'm not political. I literally could care less. And um, it turns out that they end up getting banned from the fest. They get kicked out. And I, I'm a part of it. Since, I, <laughs> since I'm playing with Squad, Joy Electric was a part of GOP is, is not G.O.D. And I never get asked back to the festival. So I just got sort of like... I just got sort of caught up into all of their uh, political maneuvering. And uh, to this day, I've never been asked back to Sunshine Fest. Would you accept the invitation if it was offered? Well, right now, I mean, I... I mean, I do happy rent for a living now, so I, you know, that's <laughs> when this is big business. That, that that can't hold a candle to it. Playing playing for a bunch of tent dwellers outside a high school in Minnesota just doesn't hold a candle. Well, I just it was weird because I just thought I, I mean I never had any proof of it, but I thought you know what it has to be because of that because it's like the only festival we never got asked back to again. You know what I mean? And it was just so. It was it was a bummer because it was a really good show and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, oh, Squad Five O, you guys just messed me up for life at that one. Yeah, I went to uh, I went to that one probably. What year would that have been? Two thousand one or two thousand and two, maybe. Oh man, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I saw like the OC Supertones yeah. and. Who Rebecca St. James played, and uh, yeah. who else was on stage? All um, that real great stuff. Yeah, just yeah. I mean, it was <laughs> it was peak CCM right there. I was there. I was there to hang out with friends. I don't even remember going to any of the concerts. I remember sitting around in a circle of tents and like playing cards and. Yeah, and, like uh, so, Pipe. Chilling. You were the guys. Like you were. You were one of the guys that like the bands just like were super bummed about because you didn't like buy any like merchandise. Oh. You didn't even watch the band. You were just literally there to like hang out with your buds and just like have a good time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was like a weekend, and I'm like, sure, I'll drive an hour and a half to go stay in a tent and hang out with friends. That sounds like fun. And then it's just sort of like the soundtrack going on in the background. <laughs> right. Right. 
which yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry I didn't help your your cause. No, no, no. I know, but like that. So like those fests, like that. It was made up of it was it was made up of you know a combination of like super fans, which is really who you were there for, and then like just the casual hanger honorers like you that are just there to hang out. Which is there's nothing wrong and with then, that. You know, it's totally legitimate. But, and then parents chaperoning, right? It was just a, it was such a it was such a mixed bag. It was just such a mixed bag of like, what now? Are are you here because you're like into this, or are you here because you're with your like your youth group? Or and then you you always kind of knew the people that were there that were diehards, you know, and that they're they've been waiting months for this moment, and and you know, and those were the people that you actually were really playing for. But right, yeah. all right. So this is a question that was posed by by listeners when I teased a while back that we were recording this episode. Apparently they were there when this happened. Oh, no. I have no context other than other than than this was a thing that happened. Apparently you were playing Cornerstone, which I believe is another <clears throat> festival. Yeah, and uh, you you just pulled the plug and walked off stage mid set. Oh man! They, listeners swear this is true via social media, and since it's on the internet, I know it is true. Um, <laughs> what? What the heck happened at that Cornerstone Festival that made the uh, the seemingly mild mannered Ronald J. Martin just cut and run mid set? Oh man, dude, that's funny. I don't. I, what's crazy is I, I I kind of remember something like that, but it was that really would not have been like a normal thing. We were not like prima donnas on stage. I mean, we you know here's the thing: mm-hmm. when you we played Cornerstone eleven years in a row. And, um, you know, you had certain expectations when you went to Cornerstone. Number one was that you, you know, you drew pretty, pretty big crowds. So it was a really great show. You had a lot of fans there because it was kind of the festival for, you know, more of the, uh, you know, creative, you know, kind of, you know, culty, you know, kind of, uh, you know, experimental kind of bands, you know, and, and, um, so, uh, so you had expectations that it was going to be a great show. It was going to be packed. It was going to be hot. Um, the, the other expectation was that for some reason, I mean, the sound was never good. Like no matter what stage we played on, it was always a disaster. We always had problems. We even would hire sound guys to come in and like do our sound and even they couldn't like get it good. So it was just, it was constant frustration, right? So all I can think about was that there was one particular moment there where it must've been later in our in our, our lifespan at Cornerstone, where it was just so bad that I was like, I can't do this anymore. Let's be done because I can't hear myself. It's just a disaster. So I'm going to get all like rock star prima donna and just walk off. I, but I but like I literally don't remember doing that because we were so anti being that. It was like, no, who cares? Just push through. We're punk rock. We just play no matter what. And uh, But I, I, I must have reached my, my end point, Pipe. I mean, I... Yeah, I mean that that must have been really really awful if that's the case because it's I mean you don't seem like the type of guy who just reaches you know reaches the end of your rope quickly and for no reason. No, I I mean and that's that's absolutely true. I mean it was just but so, okay, so there were mo- there you know there there are moments in the life uh, of a of a touring artist where sometimes you know all Everything that just compounds and goes wrong night after night, sometimes you reach those nights where all of it's happening at once, right? Like everything that can go wrong, uh, because again, something is going wrong every night, but like sometimes all the things that can go wrong, go wrong in one night and you're having a day or a week or a month, maybe even a year where it's just like you cannot take one more second of it and you're like, I'm done, I'm out, I can't do it anymore. And that must have been one of those moments. Now, it doesn't help that Cornerstone was literally 120 degrees with humidity at like whatever the number is when it's like the worst. You know what I mean? And um, so, I mean, all of those things combined, you know, where you're just up there and you're dripping and you're sweating and it's horrible. And you can't. Nothing helps. Nothing helps a crappy sound system like Swamp Crush. (laughs) I mean, it's just the worst. So that's all I can think about. So let me just throw it out there and apologize to anybody that got cut short and just say, you know, we'll make it up. Well, we won't ever make it up. We're done. So there you go. 
this yeah. this is extending an olive branch though to, <laughs> to all of all of our numerous listeners who were there and felt let down. Let down even uh, though they could have seen us the other ten years or the other like thousands <laughs> of shows that we played and And to be honest, they probably did. Because they if you're at Cornerstone once, you're probably there making your pilgrimage year Oh, after you year. are. It was a total pilgrimage. Cornerstone was uh they just they they finally ended it a few years back, but it was um I mean it was it was the birthplace for uh for so many for so many things. And probably the birthplace for so many people too. So, you know, all of that combined. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was conceived at a Christian music festival. Oh, for sure. I mean, I've met people that have told me that, right? I've met people that have told me that. Crazy. Congratulations. Yeah, that's great. Guess. Good for them. Your Woodstock experience. Uh, all right. Uh, you brought up sound, guys. So this sparked a question. I was at a live concert not too long ago. It was an outdoor venue. It was kind of cold and rainy. And the let's just put it this way. The, whoever was doing the mixing uh, was terrible. It, yeah. You know, so like all you could hear was kick drums and distortion. Yeah. yeah. Um, by the time that that was through the couple opening acts, and then it got better as it went along. So here's my question: Were did venues usually provide the sound guys, or did you, as a band or at a record label, sort of provide the people who were who had expertise in this? Because that makes or breaks a show. Yeah, no, it does. So if you're really if you're a you know, if you're a really big band, um, you usually have your own sound guy. We we were, you know, we were not, you know, a million selling band. So we, we didn't really, there was a, I think there was a, there was a couple of tours where we had somebody that did, we had somebody that did that for us and they, you know, they were able to, to do a good job. But it's um, a lot of it, it's a combination between the sound system and the sound man. Now, the cliche mm-hmm. with sound guys is, you know, again, you're usually dealing with a guy that, you know, is like this ex like heavy metal dude that, you know, used to do sound for like, you know, I don't know, Tesla back in the eighties or one of those kinds of bands, you know, so <laughs> all of them, all of them. One. Right. So the cliche is like, it's always that guy. Like, I don't know why those guys always become sound guys, but so for us, now you got to understand, like for us, for our, we had a lot of like backing tracks and we were doing this at a time, you know, all bands use backing tracks now. We were doing this at a right. time when backing tracks were kind of evil. But, and we kind of were, you know, we just were like, no, we have backing tracks and we can't play our music without backing tracks. And so it just freaked out most sound guys, even though it was almost like a night off for them because they only had a few channels to work with with us. So we weren't like one of these bands that came in and they had to mix like 20 channels or 40 channels. We would come right. and be like, here's five channels plus a vocal. Like this should be really, really simple for you. And for some reason, the, <laughs> the simplicity of it all just messed them up like even more. <laughs> it's like, dude, all you got to do is put up these like stereo backing tracks. That's like going to be like the bass and like the baseline of our song and man, it's super simple. And the rest of it is just, you know, we even do some of our own mixing on stage. This should be like a piece of cake, easiest night of your life. Just, just really crank us, make it good, make it loud. And they looked at us like literally we had just like dropped an assembly of like broken computer innards, you know, on their lap. They didn't know what to do with any of it, you know? It's like asking a gourmet chef to make chocolate chip cookies and they just freeze. Dude, seriously. It's like, like, look, there's four four ingredients. Here's a jar of Jif and some Smuckers. Make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And they're looking at you like you've just... You know what I mean? Like you just ask them to like complete a new cookbook on the spot for them, you know? And, oh, sound guys. Uh, so, man, I'm telling you, I mean, it was – it got to – it. There were, there were times when it was so ridiculous. But, Pipe, here's what's crazy. When we found a sound guy that we liked, I mean, you would have thought that we just fell in love, man. I mean, so we would have – I mean, we would do things like this, Pipe. We, so we would do a sound check, right? And if we what, – what would always happen at a sound check is that the sound check was great. And then when you started your show, everything was tweaked and different and they just like messed with, with everything, right? And so mm-hmm. what we would do is we got into this habit where – well, this was, this was like my – the guy that would like you know kind of manage us on the road. He would literally do – we would do our sound check. He would go back to the sound guy and he would say, dude – What's it going to take for our sound not to change from where it is right now? And the guy would, again, every time the guy would look at you like, dude, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm not going to touch those channels. And my guy would be like, you are, you're going to touch those channels because it's not going to be where it's at. So he's going to say, I'm going to reach into my pocket and I want you to give me a dollar. I want you to give me a number and I'm going to give that to you. 
in the hopes, with the promise, that our sound will not change. It'll remain this loud. All the settings will stay the same. So we just started like paying these guys just to not touch our sound. And it got a, it got a little bit better after that. Got a they, got a, they got a bonus to do their jobs. Seriously. And when we found a sound guy we liked, Pipe, and this was a venue that we'd be going back to like many times. Oh, my gosh. I mean, dude, we do like we'd buy him dinner like we anything like, dude, we love you. You just like heap your praise on him. Like, dude, just keep doing what you're doing because we love you. This is great. And because um, it was such a it was such a mess. I mean, it was literally, literally. Such a mess. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially because that's like it. You know, anybody who speaks has had the situation where, like, you get a crappy cordless mic or whatever or the -the over-the-ear mic. But that's not that big of a deal because you can always swap that out. There's no sound mixing. It's just a voice. But when audio quality is the entirety of your livelihood, that's that's a somewhat large deal. Yeah, it's bad. And so, yeah, so that would be – so when the sound was bad, it would be one of those things where it's like, all right, everything feels like it's going wrong. But Pipe, I'm just going to let you on a couple of other things, man. There were some other things that went wrong. So here's a, here's a couple of things that I think you and the listeners will appreciate. Um, so there was this one, there was this one show where we're, we're playing a song, and um, in between like the songs, right? You were queuing up other. Can we have backing tracks? So we, it took us a minute. We had to queue things up, and this guy kept like yelling out, like you know, um, I want to, you know, play this song, play this song. And so here's the thing, like, uh, we, we, we couldn't play that song. Like we didn't have, like, we're not a live, live band. So we can't just bust into any song that we wanted to. It would have to be a song that we have, you know what I mean? And so he kept saying, play this song. And it was some like older, obscure song that like, we're not playing. And so at some point I just said, I I was like, dude, I'm like, man, I'm so sorry. We would totally play that, but we don't have it. And um, so again, we really appreciate the support, but we don't, we can't, and we literally can't play it. We don't, we literally don't have it. We don't possess it. And so we start into the next song, and I'm like leaning down, kind of over the stage, and the guy like makes his way up and just totally spits like right in my face, just all of it, like <laughs> in my I'm eyes, laughing. on my nose, all of it like coming down me. Yeah. Oh. That did did it was there like security there to remove him? Or yeah, anything? they like yeah they literally security caught it. They they grabbed him. They pulled it out, and he's just like you know cussing me out as they're dragging him towards the door. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know. And then um, so we finished the show, and um, we walk backstage, and I I caught like a glimpse of him like lingering, you know, the little door that like kind of gets uh-huh. you backstage, and. Um, and and he's just kind of peeking through, and I and I looked at him. I said, "Dude, what was that?" You know, I'm like, "What was that?" And he goes, "Why didn't you play the song?" I asked. I go, "Dude, I told you, like, like you know, like you know, we're not like a live band. Like, like if we don't have the song, like we don't just get up there and we're not the Grateful Dead, brother. Like we can't just we don't just start jamming on this yeah. stuff." Yeah, I go. So <laughs> if we don't have it, we don't have it. You know. And he goes, he goes, you're lying. I go, oh my gosh. I go, so you spit at me. You know. So anyway, so that was just one of the that was one of those great. Great moment. Here's another great moment. So, um, so we had this, we had this, we had this guy write us before we were flying out to do this show, this particular venue. And this was, this was, this was one of these super weird ones where you just don't even know how to explain it. This happened more often than I care to admit, but we had this guy like he, he sent this, um, we got to the venue and uh, we're backstage and he sent this, this note, this request. And he said this, he said, Hey, he goes, I, I, I have, I have blood and I've put it into necklace form and I would like you to wear it around your neck while you play tonight. Wait, this, Will you, you guys say do this that? happened more than you would care to admit. I no, mean, no, 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 no. I'm saying things of this like bizarro kind of nature. Okay. Not this I mean, exact. I was going to say, what was this like? <laughs> you had like a blood cult that was a big fan or this what? Guy was a, I mean, this guy was probably a little on the gothy end of things, you know? So, a little. Yeah. A little. So he, so he literally, he had made this. And he, so obviously I said, no, I'm not wearing your blood around my neck after the show. You know, I mean, you know, during the show. You're no fun. Yeah, I know. I wasn't real fun that night. But um, so after the show, he shows me like this necklace thing where he like inserted his own blood into this necklace thing that he made. And he wanted me to wear it because it would like mean so much to him. And uh, so, yeah, so that was 
that was uh, that was one of those super bizarro like moments where you just go, oh my gosh, like I why am I doing this? Like I just want to play my songs. Why am I do? Why am I having discussions about like a guy you know wearing his blood around my neck and and you know all that kind of stuff? And then there were other times where you would get like, I mean, I remember there was this time of this. There was literally this girl. She was drunk. You know, right after I finished the show, it was up in L.A. and my wife's there with me. And it was right before we left on a three month tour. And this it was it was it was a girl. And she was she was the friend of like this fan that we had from L.A. And he was this really nice guy. And he was this really devoted fan, just like went to every show, like, you know, just was really loved us. Really great guy. And I guess it was a friend of his. And she literally she literally attacked me in front of my wife. And um, like violent attack or like trying to make out with you attack. Yeah, kind of both. And um, it <laughs> felt violent. And um, I, I literally had to like push, her, like literally, it was like a suction cup. Right, I literally had to like push her off me. And um, and you know, again, my wife is right there. And um, it's like none of it's going good, right? None of it's going right. good in the moment. Yeah. And I've, um, no, I've, I've met your wife, and she's she's really really nice, but yeah. She doesn't seem like the type who would just sort of stand by and like, haha, that's so funny. No, no, she she wasn't. But like, <laughs> but, yeah, but the whole thing happened like it was so shocking because you know again we're it, you know we're not the Beatles. It's not a hard day's night. You know we're not Bieber. We don't have like throngs of people coming after. So it was just this really weird thing. And then so this um, you know my the the guy you know the fan you know comes up and he like kind of breaks it up and he's just so apologetic. He's like, oh my like, dude, I'm so sorry. I, yeah, man, I, I, she's just, she's really drunk. I'm so sorry. You know, and he just kept saying how sorry he was. And I never, I never saw this guy come to a show again after that. And he was just this really, really like faithful, ardent fan. But just stuff like that would happen on occasion that was like, it would just take you by storm and by surprise. And it was just one of those, it was those, it was those things where you just go, I don't like, why are we even doing this? You know, we're just calling to question everything you're doing, you know? Well, yes, I can only imagine that that was a, uh, <laughs> that would that might have been a uh, a take stock of things moment. Yeah, and even that, that I mean, that didn't ha- that happened very, very, uh, very rarely. I mean, more often than not, since you were playing like a you know you'd play some like youthy venues, youth groupy venues, you'd have people you know wanting to pray and wanting to like tell you everything that that they're going through in the moment. So you were you were kind of doing this sort of this quasi youth pastor thing, you know, as you were playing those types of venues, you know. So it's weird. Boy, I bet there's some stories to tell there, but oh, there is for, indeed. For, yeah. for, for the sake of time, maybe maybe we'll have to do a uh, a round two of this. But for the sake of time, uh, I want to I want to hit a couple more questions. Uh, this is the name dropping portion of the episode, <coughs> in which in which listeners wait with bated breath for Ronnie to say things that Ronnie is not willing to say. Oh so, boy, who uh, who is your favorite your favorite group or groups to? to go on tour with or to be at a festival with. So like who you just, you look back and you're like, man, they were so much fun or they were way cooler than I thought they would be, or they stand out in your mind in some way. Yeah, that's tough, man. I don't, it's probably a lot. It's, it's probably a lot of like bands that nobody would really have heard of. I remember we did play. I remember we actually played this. We opened for Petra one time. This was awesome. This was back in the, uh, the late nineties. We were on a package tour with two other bands and um, one of the one of the stops on the tour was that it was it was like a big event thing we were doing, and it just Petra happened to be like headlining it, and then and then so it was like Petra, and then our packet, you know, our tour was going to play under them, you know. And this is, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, I mean, I guess like I guess like every year past like nineteen eighty four was was past Petra's time technically, but they still but they still but they still drew like massive crowds. So we played this massive like convention center i i literally don't remember where it was but it was this massive venue um just a ton of people um oddly enough i think more people were there to see our tour than like petra but um but i remember like meeting like the singer and i i don't even know what singer it was at the time and um and he was just a really cool guy really nice guy and um the whole band was uh, super nice the road crew was not very nice because that's typically how it goes in those scenarios but but the band was like <laughs> the the band legitimately acted like they they really loved us and they were interested in us and they were happy we were there 
And um, so I, you know, again, you know, I mean, the way, you know, our, what we were doing musically was about as anti-Petra as you could humanly get, you know. I mean, we literally formed, you know, because we, we didn't, we, you know, we, we were the antithesis of bands like Petra, you know. So, so that was, that was kind of interesting. But ride that gravy train. Yeah, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was one of those things where it's just super weird. And then I remember this, I remember we played this uh, festival up north, uh, I think in Northern California one time. And um, so I'm just hanging out and this like long blonde haired dude like walks up and he goes, are you Ronnie? And I'm like, yeah, hey, you know, and he goes and he goes, he goes, well, I don't know if you know me. And you know, he like paused. I'm like, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't. And he goes, well, yeah, I'm, I'm in uh, Audio Adrenaline. I'm the, you know, the, the long blonde guy, whoever, the bass player, whoever it was. I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, I've, to this day, I've literally never heard an Audio Adrenaline song. I have no clue. And, oh, I saw uh, them in concert, too. I think they were part of that same music festival. Might have oh, been the Newsboys. They're all the same to me. There you but. go. Well, they are all the same. Yeah. But this guy, so this guy, so I, so all of us, I don't know. I, you know, he was, I, I didn't get the sense that he was like a fan or anything, but he was talking to me like he was a fan. And then before I know it, like he's literally like loading all of our gear onto the stage and he's like helping the sound guy and he's like getting everything in place. I'm like, dude, what, like, like, what are, like, what are you doing right now? Like, why are you literally our road crew right now? You know what I mean? And, uh, but again, a super nice guy. And then, um, he ends up calling me five days later. I don't, I didn't give him my number. He just got my number. He calls me five days later and he said, Hey, we are, um, we're actually, you know, we're, we just, we just sort of created a new like label and we're wondering like what you're doing and if that might be something that would interest you. I'm like, no, nah, you know, I already got my, I'm already signed. Like I'm not. And so I don't know. It was just one of those weird things where these guys that were kind of these like big, big, like hundred thousand million unit sellers, you know, in the industry, like you collide with them and, um, and you're, you realize how small the industry is because we're right. clearly not on their level, but they're aware of you because you have, at the end of the day, you have more credibility because you're, you know, you're, you, you kind of have this thing that they don't have, but then they have all this other thing you don't have, which is called money. And, um, so it was <laughs> sales <laughs> and sales, right? Yeah. So, uh, so that, that kind of stuff was, was kind of fun. And then, um, this is something that kind of goes, goes along with it. So, um, I remember this was about 10 years ago after, or maybe longer than that, 12 years ago after Striper kind of came back. They sort of reformed. And, you know, I don't mean that in the reform way that we like to talk about on the rant, obviously. But they, but no, by reformed, not, we not mean they, they came back together, right? And um, I remember I got this call from their management and they were getting ready to go out on their, on their first tour in like 10 years. And they literally asked me if I would be willing to like go on tour and play keyboards with them. And I was just like, wow, like the tables have turned, like it's gone full circle now. I have Striper calling to ask if I want to go out on tour and do keyboards for them. And um, the irony of that was just too much for me to handle. Obviously, I, I didn't do it, but it was just insane. Literally insane. So did it, did it feel like a, did it feel like a power play to turn them down? Or was it like a, ah, uh, you know, not really the time or place? I mean, no, it did. I mean, no, there was no. I mean, if this would have been at the time of like to hell with the devil in 1987, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it would have been a major power play to turn them down at, you know, when I was a teenager, right? But, um, but no, this was just like, oh, um, are, are you sure? Was I the person you meant to call? Like, that's literally how I was. <laughs> like, are you sure you're, no, 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 no. We, cause, I mean, no, we know who you are. I mean, we're, you know, you're like the keyboard guy and, you know, all this stuff. And so we just thought, man, this would be a great fit. I'm like, wait, you didn't just say fit, did you? I mean, like, <laughs> I, like I can do the keyboard parts. That's not the problem. Um, By fit, we mean you were the last name to fit on the page of people we were calling. And so we've tried everybody else and and you're the perfect fit that is exactly what it must have been yeah absolutely so yeah that one um yeah i i forget it my wife actually just reminded me about that one that yeah remember that time striper asked you to go on tour with them and i went oh yeah i totally i tried to push that one out of my mind but um they were nice i mean the man it was just their management or something but it was they oh that's fantastic that. that's so a there great it is. i passed up i passed up my moment to be uh, in the reformed and again, we say reformed striper. We're not saying, you know, the Calvinistic striper. We're saying the reunited striper. Yes. 
right. Well, I think <clears throat> I think that's a great story to end on. I have one more question for you, and that is, what do you miss most about being on the road, oh, man. if anything? Or do you just love not being on the road? I love not being on the road. Um, I do love not being on the road. I mean, you're obviously well-traveled because every time we record a podcast, you're just getting back from some exotic middle America location. Yeah, I'm really not, but I like that you different, think that. But. Different sort of on the road. Yeah, I, you know, there was, I think some, as, yeah, there's a, some aspects of it are are fun in the sense that, you know, it's, um, there's just something, there's kind of an escape there's kind of an escapist quality to it where you're just kind of out and you kind of don't have to think about, you know, regular life. You don't have to engage in, uh, you know, kind of the day to day and you're just kind of out doing something that you love to do. And, um, everything else freezes around you because that's really all you can do is just, you know, play the show, travel to the town, you know, kind of cruise around the city. Um, so there, there's a, there's a part of that, that was, that was kind of fun in, in that aspect, in that regard. But, um, but I think all of the other things that go along with that, I, I think makes it to where I think when you're, when you're true, some guys just love to be on the road forever. I actually understand that. But I think for me, it was a real relief when it was just sort of this acknowledgement that, yeah, I'm kind of done with that now. But at the same time, you know, I don't mind, you know, you know, going out and doing speaking gigs. Like, I still like doing that. I th- there's, there's an enjoyment to that because it's so much more simple yeah, and, and so much easier just to show up and like speak at a, at a thing at a conference or whatever it is. And, and um, so that's fun because it's like you don't have all the gear and all the complications and the merchandise and the bad sound and, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's just, right. you, you know, yeah. Well, I'm sure we could go on and on and I'm sure listeners will clamor for another episode of this. But we have talked for well over an hour about Tales from the Road on CCM, uh, which I means I think we have wandered to and far. <laughs> and to and fro and now is probably the time to say Rachel the Held Evans The Happy Rant is brought to you by Resonate Recordings Resonate has helped us with our editing and mastering pretty much from the beginning of the podcast If you go to ResonateRecordings.com you can see the full range of services they offer so if you're considering starting a podcast they are the ones we recommend going with. Mark and Jake do a fantastic and timely job with all sorts of podcast services. Again, go to ResonateRecordings.com to see their prices, to connect with them and ask any questions, and to see what they can do to help you launch, edit, master, and improve your podcast. Hello, my name is Adam Comer. And I'm Ryan Chittister. And we're the host of Life After Addiction Podcast. If you or someone you love struggles with addiction, check us out, Life After Addiction Podcast, and you can subscribe at lifeaudio.com.